Hey, everybody. This is Chris Malampe, host of Hit Parade, Slate's podcast of pop chart history. Welcome to The Bridge. I'm walking down Times Square. This is The Bridge I Burned, the last song Elvis Costello recorded for Warner Brothers Records for a 1997 compilation album called Extreme Honey. The song is quite literally about burning a bridge, career-wise. Costello recorded it specifically to fulfill his Warner contract. There was no love lost between the label and Costello. In the liner notes to a later reissue, he revealed that the label had allotted a $1,000 budget total to promote Extreme Honey worldwide, which he said is, quote, about as close as a major record company can legally get to putting a horse's head in your bed, unquote. Given the anemic promotion, the Extreme Honey album did not chart. Incidentally, the original recording of The Bridge I Burned includes four lines lifted from Prince's 1985 number seven hit, Pop Life. However, when asked permission by Costello for the lyrical allusion, Prince refused. Instead, Costello replaced the lines with audio of someone shouting through a megaphone. Ever the punk, even in the 90s, Elvis was willing to burn a bridge. And these mini-episodes bridge our full-length monthly episodes, give us a chance to expand on those episode topics, and enjoy some trivia. This month, I'm delighted to welcome back a guest whose expertise ranges widely. He was just on the bridge earlier this year, after our Hall & Oates episode. Stephen Thomas Erlewine is a senior editor at Xperi, whose database of music information is available at allmusic.com. In his quarter century with All Music, Tom has written thousands of record reviews and biographies. He's also contributed to Rolling Stone, Pitchfork, Billboard, Spin, Vulture, and the LA Times, and has written liner notes for Legacy and Vinyl Me Please. Yet again, Tom's work at All Music was a prime resource on my latest Hit Parade episode. He has reviewed many of the albums by these so-called angry young men, and he has thought more deeply about the differences between pub rock, power pop, and post-punk than most critics, let alone most music fans. Tom Erlewine, welcome back to The Bridge. Thanks so much for having me again, Chris. It's a pleasure. Oh, it's my pleasure. Let's start out with what I consider to be the most obvious question, and it's one that has popped up in some of the interactions I've had with listeners since this episode dropped a couple weeks ago. Okay. I call it the punk question. Do you think any of the so-called angry young men, Elvis Costello, Joe Jackson, Graham Parker, were ever really punk? I mean, maybe at the beginning, were they ever? I would put Elvis Costello and the attractions in there. And I think Graham Parker is adjacent. Graham Parker doesn't really have an edge outside of his voice. There's a real snarl in his delivery and also in his lyrics, but it's closer to new wave than punk. Whereas Elvis, you set aside the polish of my aim is true. You can go right into this year's model, and that's a punk record by any stretch of the imagination. Not just another man. 
same thing with uh, Joe Jackson portions of Look Sharp and I'm the Man. Once you have the really high octane Joe Jackson numbers, they're definitely in the punk realm. And also when you look at say The Clash, Joe Strummer also had a ba background in pub rock. He was in the 101er. You know, there's a lot of other people that cut their teeth in pub rock or something that's a little bit pub adjacent and wound up being absolute punks. And also, like, the terms are sort of amorphous and mutable, too. Like, they meant one thing at the time, and then they've come on to signify something else as the years go on. Let's talk about pub rock, because, sure. you know, your scholarship was useful to me in this episode. And in an old review of yours I turned up, you wrote the following, quote, Pub rock is the frequently forgotten forefather of punk rock, although on the surface, the two genres don't appear to have much in common, unquote. Now, how did you mean that? Where are the commonalities and the differences? And bonus question, is it fair to call pub rock a scene? I think it's absolutely fair because, you know, there there was an actual circuit. You know, there were the people play the same same pubs. They play the Crown and Anchor, for for instance. So, you know, and people would have residencies in certain pubs. And they also played on each other's records and had a right. certain kind of aesthetic and repertoire that they would share. And a lot of that stems from a deep love of the band. Like, the band is sort of ground zero. Interesting. That's an influence I didn't point out in the in the episode, the idea that the band were so influential. Absolutely, because they also would uh, switch instruments. They would uh, bring in covers to an extent, uh, in, like during their concerts, and it had that sort of back to basics feel to it. And it's very difficult to see pub rock developing the way that it did without that. Now, it gets a little bit of like a harder R&B swing sort of thing that sort of stems from the British Beat era of the 60s, but there's a coziness to a lot of pub rock that comes from the band and an extent Crosby, Stills & Nash, that sort of harmony laid in country rock. A lot of early Brinsley Schwartz, which is was Nick Lowe's first band, is certainly heavy on CSNY harmonies. Everybody And you get the f feeling, especially in the, the years that subsequent, is that pub rock can be used as pejorative, that it's there's not, not a lot of ambition there. And it's also, you know, very comfortable that it doesn't try to make any waves, whereas the idea of punk is that it's a disruptor, so that, that it was like, like a revolutionary thing. But in a weird way, they both come from the same instinct of going back to basics, like they're going back to basics either of the 60s or 50s rock and roll. And a lot of players in the pub rock scene, as I mentioned before, go on to punk. So they have the shared roots. And then there's uh, like a band like Dr. Feelgood, who made their way up through pub rock. actually had a 
wild success in the UK, just as punk was happening and winds up being enormously influential on punk and post-punk. Uh, their guitarist, Wilco Johnson, just passed in the last yes. week. Yes. And he had a very distinctive, aggressive finger-picking style that, that's staccato and sort of nervy. I saw somebody holding tight a rock set. I wondered who it could be. And if you listen to that, that can go on to post-punk. Like, it's hard to imagine Gang of Four without him. Steve Albini tweeted out that he was one of his primary influences. But if you look at a certain perspective, Dr. Feelgood, it is just hard rock and roll, hard R&B. Like, they're sort of like coming out of the, the stones and the animals and that sort of thing. Pub rock actually didn't have much of an edge, which is also interesting about Graham Parker, is that he did have the snarl that sort of pivots out of pub rock into this new wave, as it were. <laughs> right. Lowercase n, lowercase w. Exactly. <laughs> we'll get to that one, too. Yeah. Now, power pop, by contrast, I didn't go too deep into power pop in the episode because it seems to me that power pop, first of all, wasn't really a scene. It was a sound. It seems transatlantic. On the one hand, I've heard people say Badfinger, who are British, were power pop. Yet then a lot of the power pop bands that were famous were American. Yeah. And then it gets kind of applied to the likes of Elvis Costello and Joe Jackson later and comes up as power pop bands are starting to score hits. But it, it seems to sit outside of the whole pub rock thing. Yeah, I very much agree with that. Like power pop is very amorphous in terms of a term like it seems like it would be a very definitive thing because it tends to be used for things that are harking back to 60s guitar pop that, that are very hooky very punchy very like songs about love and girls and just basic topics like that so it seems like it would be an easy thing to do but the fact of the matter is that power pop as a term is sort of a retroactive phrase. Like, if you look at the pioneers of the early 70s, Big Star, which nobody really heard at the time, right? there were a Memphis group that tried to sound like the British Invasion, and they didn't have any hits. Todd Rundgren was a, a weirdo, and if you listened, he has individual songs like couldn't i just tell you sort of like contains the template for big star in a way with its chimes and really loud beats but nobody was called power pop in the 70s the first wave of power poppers still bristle at the name being applied to them i know that marshall crenshaw for instance really hates the term power pop pete townsend uses it in an interview in the 60s. Pete Townsend is a very thoughtful guy and very interesting thinker, but he also spilled nonsense in interviews. <laughs> like it's not something <laughs> sure. that it's not like something that was a, a really crafted term. And I found no record of him ever talking about power pop again. But it's something that Greg Shaw and the team at Bomp in San Francisco, which was a fanzine and a label that is a, a specialized in this kind of sound, they sort of found the term or and but the term was sort of floating in the air and they started building the scene around the bands of the late 70s that specialized in this very hooky, very catchy pop music. And it's sort of like the platonic ideal of a pop single without actually 
bothering with the charts you know it's like right. like it's sort of like like it's a pop without the hits in the, right in it's a fantasy version of radio and a common theme among power pop fans is like this could have been a huge hit right in a parallel universe this should have been a exactly huge hit. and basically you only have a handful of power pop songs from the 70s and early 80s which is really the peak of the skinny tie era that actually were hits. An interesting crossover between the American scene and British is Dave Edmonds produced Flame and Groovy's Shake Some Action, which is probably the definitive power pop song and album. And so that would be right around the time that he produced uh, New Favorites of Brinsley Schwartz and just about his, his solo career really takes off when he's signed to Swansong, Led Zeppelin's label. Glad you brought up Dave Edmonds because he seems to be a kind of zealot figure who just shows up every place across pub rock and power pop mm-hmm. and post-punk and new wave. He's kind of there. The same eventually goes for Nick Lowe, who just seems to show up in these places. I I see Dave and Nick, Edmonds and Lowe, being these sort of liminal figures who kind of bring these scenes together. Does that make sense to you? To an extent, yes. And and what's interesting, if if you look back at Dave Edmonds, he actually had this huge hit with I Hear You Knock, a cover of the Smiley Lewis song, which is actually... It is retro, but not. Right. It still sounds like the 70s. Exactly. Because in the early 70s, there was a lot of 50s revival going on in both sides of the Atlantic. But he managed to make it sound not quite glam, but sound modern. And he had a real great production ear. And if you read Wilbur's bio on Nick Lowe, Cruel to Be Kind, Edmonds had a tendency to go in and just push all the levels up in the studio and to make everything very loud. So, like, he would make pop stuff sound really alive and loud and forceful, which is something that Nick sort of picks up on his productions, which earned him his nickname of Basher because he would just go in, do just a minimal amount of takes and sort of keep the vibe going. Edmonds not only was uh, sort of this bridge between, you know, this retro rock, power pop, and pub rock, but he was kind of on the outskirts of rock royalty in the 80s. You know, he shows up on Paul McCartney's Give My Regards to Broad Street. He plays early Rock and Roll Hall of Fame stuff. He was, he played like a New Year's Rockin' Eve MTV thing around 85. So he was actually kind of big for a while. Then he just fades away because he actually couldn't adapt with the times. Really, his last big thing was producing Nick's uh, Party of One album in 91. And then he had uh, a plugged in, which was a play on Unplugged in 93. But then he just disappeared like for a good 30 years or so. (laughs) But Dave really could make great records. And he was also somebody that had some real rock vitality in there and helped make power pop seem more alive. 
And it seems to me that new wave is the most capacious term of all. I mean, I once uh, downloaded a playlist from the late lamented Blender magazine that defined new wave as spanning everything from the modern lovers and Elvis Costello to early Prince, R.E.M. and Duran Duran. So is new wave just a catch-all? And did the angry young man have anything to do with what new wave became? Well, to an extent, it is a catch-all, but I tend to think of it as like an era as much as anything else. And it was a marketing term, a way to sell punk to like it's the softer, sweeter side of punk or more accessible. But it definitely was a phase that sort of comes in around 78 and probably lasts to 83 or so that encompasses these earlier pub survivors to the first new romantics. Now, there's not a direct connection between Graham Parker and Duran Duran, but you know, squeezing out sparks has a new wave production on it, as far as I'm concerned. Waiting for the U Waiting for the U Prince absolutely dabbles with the elements of new wave on Dirty Mind. You know, the ways the guitars are produced and the synths. On Dirty Mind, frankly, the synths even remind me of Elvis Costello on a couple exactly. of Exactly. And I do believe that Prince, like, at that time was absorbing everything. And you listen to those early Attractions records, and Steve Naive's keyboards are just, like, they're overpowering. They're sort of, like, careening. So I think that it's certainly likely that Prince was listening to that stuff. To me, I don't like to put R.E.M. there. This just might be my own personal taste, is that R.E.M. seems to be a reaction to New Wave to me. It becomes more guitar-oriented, and, you know, they do sort of throwback to some 60s things they might sound like the birds to an extent but that becomes its own thing that sort of grows up maybe a little out of post-punk definitely out of punk but it opens the doors to american indie underground college rock in the 80s but new wave to me feels like it's that the polish of these records combined with early MTV and the synth pop. And it was a time that also, there were so many like weird quirks that it was open to novelties as well. Like, and people were trying, trying to make a hit however they could. And it sort of stems out of the stiff records stuff too, which like the stiff records were shameless hucksters. And that's what I, I really like about like early Nick Lowe is that you listen to Jesus of cool. And it's a, it's not one thing. It's like about 50 different styles within 12 songs. And I feel like that sort of pushes it forward because like it's it's also a little bit postmodern, like it's self-referential, doesn't take itself too seriously. And that's sort of where New Wave comes to for, for me. I saw it go, I saw it go, I saw it go, Oh, it's going, no one knows. I saw it go, I saw it go, I saw it go. That makes total sense. You know, you mentioned Graham Parker a couple minutes ago and and the new wave sound of squeezing out sparks. And yet when I listen to those earlier records, I definitely hear like a Van Morrison soul oh, yeah. white boy R&B vibe. Mm -hmm. He just seems to be the odd man out here because yeah. not only because he never really had any hits, I mean, even fewer than Elvis Costello, but his material was just very different. Where, where do you see him fitting in? I really like Graham Parker. And I think that he doesn't really fit easily into any of these categories. I feel like he 
shows up a little bit too early and then by the time that he really gets going his his aesthetic is a little bit too much in the past and that that keeps going and he's he also doesn't seem as adventurous as either Costello or Joe Jackson or Nick Lowe for that that matter because he's very much rooted into this cross of Van Morrison and the Rolling Stones. He'll dabble in some rockabilly and uh, some folk balladeering a, a bit, and he also can get sharper pop hooks, but he is pretty much like what the classic pub singer is. Like, he has a bar band behind him, that he and then he they can take a break, and he can play, play an acoustic song, and he stays that way throughout the 70s and in, into right now. But it's a, an aesthetic that only could have been a commercially successful probably in the 70s to extent, and he gets almost there with the early records and the early records are alive they they sound really good but then they he gets the right amount of polish for squeezing out sparks but there's also a real edge to his voice i think he doesn't make for background listening like if he comes on the radio you're drawn to his voice I think that that's the difference between him and Joe Jackson. Like Graham Parker, even if he had his stepping out, he couldn't sing that. He's the one that's more of a pub rock survivor, whereas like Costello cut his teeth in, in pub rock. He uh, trailed Brinsley Schwartz around and he was basically their number one fanboy. And then he did, he Flip City has lots of Brinsley and band influences, but then he starts to come into his own with My Aim is True and when he has the attractions his qualities like started to come into to light. Like the songs are might be better on my aim is true, but this year's model has a sharper execution and aesthetic because it is it's a band record, not the band, but it's like a group playing to, together. Because it's the first attractions, right? Exactly. And I think when people think of Elvis Costello, they think of that as the quintessential Elvis Costello sound. But one thing that I was remarking on as I put this episode together mm -hmm. was just Elvis Costello contains multitudes. I mean, he's really ranged all over the place. I'm not yeah. sure there is a one Elvis Costello sound. No. And I think there's a certain generation, older listeners that do get attached to this year's model. But even as you get to Armed Forces, it's it doesn't sound the same way. Armed Forces is a much grander production. They were listening to a lot of ABBA at the time. That's a direct connection between it and Oliver's Army. <laughs> like was. I've never heard that before, that Oliver's Army was a, an homage to ABBA. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, they tried to get some of the same keyboard sounds and feels, which is you can sort of hear it, but sort of not, which is what I like about the record is that if you read about some of the origins, it comes into play, but it sounds very distinct. Because 
Costello really is the opposite of Parker, that where he was restless. And to me, Costello, a lot of the critical talk and fans go around songwriting, which is absolutely worthy. But I think that he's also a huge record geek, because if you look at his catalog, it's like each record has its own distinct vibe from the sound to the presentation. And you can group him into about four or five different things. He does his pop stuff. He does has rock stuff. He has his more sophisticated uptown classical stuff. And he has his country folk stuff. And he sort of cycles through them. I think that's a real difference between him and even Joe Jackson, where Joe Jackson definitely has stylistic exercises on his records. But it it feels like that's more from the composition than the record itself sometimes. Right. I mean, Jackson scored the biggest pop hits of any of the three Angry yeah. Young Men. And yet in his orneriness, he almost seems punk to me, yeah. just in his kind of attitude. And yet less in the music. Is that plausible? No, I, I get where your angle is there because... He's a crank in a lot of ways. <laughs> that's a, right. that's, you'd read interviews with him. He pulls no punches. Right. Whereas uh, Costello very much has a lot of his father in him, uh, particularly after you get through the hump of the early 80s and the horrible Stephen Stills band incident. You know, he learns to turn on the charm and he's very funny in interviews and he's witty. And Jackson also is witty. But in the 80s and 90s, not a gregarious interview at all. Even when he was scoring big top 40 pop hits. Especially, almost. And there's an element of that in the music, but he also has a gentler voice than Costello, too. He does. Like, Breaking Us in Two is another one. Jackson could actually sort of croon a little bit. And that, combined with the melodicism, does mean that he had the potential to get hits on the radio, which he did for a while. It's just then he doesn't follow up. Like, Night and Day was a huge album, and it's a, it's a great record, but then he also does Willpower, and um, Big World is a poppy record, but it's also recorded live in the studio, so it's a conceptual thing. It's a big world. sort of ran away from any possible hits that he could have had. It's a fascinating career. And that unwillingness to follow up on a commercial thing sort of plays into your point that he sort of seems ornery and like a real punk that he just follows his own muse. He's cultivated a cult, but it's not the same thing as like Costello, who is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The other two aren't. This has a lot right there. <laughs> right. I think Elvis was practically a first-year eligible. He was, yeah. Whereas the other two guys have never even come up on the ballot. And, right. you know, despite the fact that Jackson is the one with the big top 40 pop hits, but Costello yeah. has the breadth of career. Yeah, and also the connections. Like, he wrote with McCartney. Like, he was positioned as, like, one of the heir parents, and he did very well. Critics love him because he gives them a lot to write about. That's I think that's always a good thing to keep in mind with critics is that you're looking for an angle. Like, sometimes the big people that make really great music might not give you an angle to work with. It's hard to, to shape your review or your feature around that. 
Well, I'm glad you mentioned the critics because, I mean, that's the one thing that ties these guys together. I think I quoted Paz and Jop in this episode among so-called charts more than any other episode I've ever done. Of course, there's the infamous quote from David Lee Roth that the reason critics love Elvis Costello is because we look like him. Yes. <laughs> Very dismissive, but also a little bit true. Yes. It's, it's a, a good quip, it's, right? It's, it's, it's insulting as hell, but it's totally, totally true. Yeah, he's not, and it's not entirely wrong. <laughs> right, right. But, you know, if the angry young man blip, and it was kind of a blip, right, because that term really yeah. only had purchase for a couple of years, if it has any legacy, it, it it seems to be spawning the critical fetish object with minimal chart success, right? I mean, are the the ultimate descendants of, you know, the angry young man, I don't know, Tame Impala or Wet Leg or something like that? Possibly. I mean, I can see see what you're, what you're getting out there, that it is not quite the birth of the critics band because I would think that you could look at the earliest passing jobs and could argue probably New York Dolls are that way too. And I'm a looking for a kiss Well won't you tell me why those kids are moving so slow Is it that they just don't have a or the Velvet Underground. Right. But those are two bands that had a pervasive influence, and I do believe Costello had a pervasive influence, as did Nick Lowe. I wasn't angry, but like, it's sort of, you've covered him in this episode. But those are definitely generations have of similar-minded artists, or things like Wilco have, you, you know, right. you can see a direct connection there, but Critical success also points to how many different publications there were in the 70s. Like, if you did a big critics poll, it's possible to build a consensus around Graham Parker. And I sort of see an analogy that, in a way, he's a working man's rocker. Like, he's somebody that just goes out and plays. Sure. There are a lot of working man's critics, then, too. Sort of like people that covered this beat for newspapers. And everybody sort of has that same kind of background. And they, they might have grown up with the same, same Stones and Van Morrison that they loved. And so it's like you're hearing echoes of things. And that's what a lot of the critics' darlings do. do. It's like they remind you of records you've liked before. And so that's what sort of builds upon things. And that, I think that's true with Wet Legs, certainly, which I like a lot. <laughs> it reminds you of other other records too and that's that's one of the reasons that people like to write about them and advocate for them right well tom uh, as always you are a fount of knowledge i cannot thank you enough for taking the time to be with us it's a pleasure this is some of my favorite music and i could talk about it all the time <laughs> that's wonderful now as long as twitter still continues to exist is that the best way for people to keep up with you yeah, start start there. I have launched myself on the various platforms. So I am on Mastodon, Post, and Hive uh, with holiday week and family stuff. I haven't been particularly active, but I have a pinned tweet on Twitter that shows where my different profiles and my Substack newsletter is. But basically, it's all under Sterlewine, S-T-E-R-L-E-W-I-N-E, so, which is also how you can find me on Twitter. Well, Tom, thank you again for joining us on Hit Parade the Bridge. It's my pleasure, Chris. Thanks. Now comes the time in Hit Parade the Bridge where we do some trivia. And joining me from Van, Texas, it's Christina. Hi, Christina. Are you there? Hello. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Now, 
you and I are contemporaries, I understand. Uh, yeah, I was born in 1970, so especially our 80s memories are very much in sync. <laughs> and I understand you were also descended from a country music singer. That is correct. My grandfather was a uh, country music singer in Texas. Harmon Bozeman, Lee Harmon, was the stage name he went by. There's no one to talk to, no one to care, just two empty glasses and one cool. And he had a nightclub called The Junction in San Antonio in the 60s. And Willie Nelson was probably the most famous of the artists who used to play there regularly. I have a great picture of Willie with my mother and grandfather. And uh, Willie still had short hair and he's in a suit. <laughs> right, because that was Willie back in the days when he was writing stuff like crazy for Patsy Cline and, you know, doing those early hits of his. Exactly. For a place to fall. And I never cared. I recently watched the George Carlin documentary, and it's a little bit like how George Carlin, before he became the groovy George Carlin, was in a suit. And Willie yes. Nelson had a similar phase like that. Right. And it hurts your brain to see it now. <laughs> you know? It really does. It really, really does. Yeah. <laughs> well, Christina, I'd also, of course, like to thank you for being a Slate Plus subscriber. We only open our trivia rounds to Plus members. And if you, Plus member, would like to be a trivia contestant, please visit slate.com slash hit parade sign up. All right, Christina, I'm sure you know how this works. We're going to ask you three trivia questions. The first will be a callback to our most recent episode of Hit Parade, and the next two will be a preview of our next episode of Hit Parade. And then at the end, you'll get a chance to turn the tables and ask me a question. Are you ready for some trivia? I'm ready. All right, here goes. Question one. In our last episode, I noted that Elvis Costello had very modest U.S. chart success. What single with a distinctive reggae rhythm was his first to chart in America in 1977? A. Allison. B. Accidents Will Happen. C. Watching the Detectives. Or D. Radio Radio. Okay. I love all of those songs, but that doesn't help me know the right answer, but... <laughs> Since you said reggae, it's got to have been C, watching the detectives. You picked up on that clue. That's exactly right. The answer is C. Though it only bubbled under the Hot 100 at number 108, it was Elvis Costello's first single to see the pages of Billboard at all. By the way, as I noted in the episode, Costello did not have a top 40 hit until Every Day I Write the Book in 1983. All right, you're one for one. Are you ready for some preview trivia? I'm ready. Here we go. Question two. What do these four songs have in common, charts-wise? The Beatles' Hey Jude, Prince's When Doves Cry, Cher's Believe, and Dua Lipa's Levitating. A. They all hit number one on the Hot 100. B. They all peaked on the Hot 100 in the month of December. C. Each was the lead single of a number one album. Or D. Each was a Billboard Top Song of the Year. Oh, gosh. Okay. I don't think it's December, because I don't think Levitating was at the peak in December. Oh, gosh. This is a hard one. So I'm going to say, I'm going to say that they were all the top single of a best-selling album. 
I'm sorry, but the correct answer was D. They are the Billboard top song of their respective year. Not all of them hit number one. They all peaked at different times of the year, and not all of them were album-leading singles. But Hey Jude was the top-ranked Billboard song of 1968, When Doves Cry was tops for 1984, Believe was tops for 1999, and Levitating was the top song of 2021. All right, one for two. I know that question was a little complicated. Now here's <laughs> one more for you. Are you ready for this one? Okay, I'm ready. All right, question three. Dua Lipa's Levitating was the top song of 2021, despite peaking at number two on the Hot 100. Which of these songs also peaked at number two, but wound up as the top hit of its year anyway? A. Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs, Wooly Bully. B. Chicago, Look Away. C. Next, Too Close. Or D. Daniel Powder, Bad Day. Oh, gosh. None of those seems to me like it should be the top song of the year that they were released, but... That's the point. <laughs> I'm going to just take a wild guess and say Daniel Powder. And I'm sorry, the correct answer was A, Wooly Bully by Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs. Despite peaking at number two, it was the top hit of 1965 over the actual number one hits I Can't Help Myself by the Four Tops and Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones. Look Away, Too Close, and Bad Day all reached number one on the Hot 100. Okay. All right. I know those were some tough preview trivia questions. <laughs> you did go one for three. That's not bad. And now's your chance to get your revenge on me because I think you have a trivia question for me. I do have one for you. And I decided to center mine around the 2022 Rock Call induction since that just happened. Oh, delightful. So 2022 Rock Hall inductee Pat Benatar had a big hit with the song Heartbreaker, but she's not the only 2022 Hall of Famer to hit the top 40 with a song by that name. Who else from 2022 class had a pop hit called Heartbreaker? A, Duran Duran, B, Carly Simon, C, Dolly Parton, or D, Eurythmics? Oh, that's an excellent question. And you said that this was... Not only a song, but a hit. It reached the pop top 40. Yep. Okay. And the choices are Duran Duran, Carly, Carly Simon, Simon, Dolly Parton, and Eurythmics. And Eurythmics. Because we're both 80s teenagers, right? You relate. I feel like I know the catalogs of Duran Duran and the Eurythmics pretty well, and I don't remember a heartbreaker for either one of them in the top 40. That leaves me with Carly and Dolly. And because Dolly just flat out didn't have that many pop top 40 hits in general, I'm going to do process of elimination and say it's B, Carly Simon? Well, that is a good guess, but it was C, Dolly Parton. It was. Wow. <laughs> it was. Her song was written by Carol Bayer Sager and David Wolfert, and it reached number 37 in 1978. Wow. It did also reach number one on the country chart. That's what I figured is that that's where most of her hits are, but... That is an excellent piece of trivia. I did not know that. It's so cool. Well, you stumped me. I think that <laughs> accrues to your column. Uh, and you did get one of my questions right. So uh, not a bad performance by you, Christina. I hope you're feeling pretty good about yourself. Well, thank you very much. Uh, yeah, I had a lot of fun doing that. If you need a, a trivia question writer, I'm happy to provide my services anytime. <laughs> well, if, judging by your last trivia question, you are good at writing stumpers. So I will keep that in mind. Thanks so much, Christina, for being on Hit Parade the Bridge. Oh, thank you for having me. 
So, as those last two trivia questions indicate, our next episode of Hit Parade, our December episode, will be about hits of the year. Sometimes all I think about is you, late nights in the middle of June, E-way's been faking me. So, it's December, when Billboard announces its top singles and albums of the year. These are not judgment calls by the magazine. They run the math to determine what was tops for the year. Even so, the results are often a little bizarre. Number two hits do occasionally wind up on top for the year. And there have been several one-hit wonders or short-lived acts that pulled off a year-end number one. Some of the year-end toppers are by megastars whom you'd expect to have the top song. The Beatles, Elton John, Prince, Whitney Houston, Mariah Carey, Beyonce, Drake. But just as often, it's someone fairly random. Do the names Domenico Modugno, Mr. Acker Bilk, Los Del Rio, Next, Lifehouse, Daniel Powder, or Gautier mean anything to you? Chart followers like me normally assume that the song that spends the most weeks at number one in any given year will be the top song of the year. But that's often not the case, including, by the way, this year, 2022. I can explain the methodological reasons why this happens, but what's more fun is to consider these songs themselves and their legacies, from I Want to Hold Your Hand to Every Breath You Take to Old Town Road. And yeah, Macarena too. Does a top song of the year do anything for a career? Is the song memorable, even if it's the artist's only hit? And which are the most enduring top songs of the year? On our next Hit Parade episode, I'll walk through six and a half decades of Billboard's top songs and figure out if dominating a year's Hit Parade is all it's cracked up to be. This episode of Hit Parade The Bridge was produced by Kevin Bendis, and I'm Chris Melanfi. Keep on marching on the one. <laughs>